0: So the big question is this, how do the best recruiters and recruitment business owners ride the highs and lows of recruitment whilst ensuring they remain at the top? How do they stay consistent? How do they manage their time? How do they cultivate the correct mindset? And what are the best recruiters and recruitment businesses doing differently? These are the questions that all recruiters want to know the answers to. This is the podcast where I have real and honest conversations with some of the most talented recruitment professionals globally to uncover all their secrets. My name is Hisham Azuz. Welcome to the Recruitment Rollercoaster Podcast. This podcast is sponsored and supported by my good friends at Hunted. Last year, Hunted helped over 300,000 recruiters all across the world. They're dedicated to improving not just the industry, but your place within it. If you want to be a better recruiter, have more resilience, see greater success in your recruitment career, or simply change jobs or country, then you need to check out hunted.com. I'd love you to check it out and let me know what you think. I've just got a. To... Get ready for it. Right, Right. let's do this. Welcome to the Recruitment Roller Coaster Podcast. My name is Hisham Azuz. And today I'm uh, joined by another international guest. I'm joined by Isabel Stevenson, uh, who is based in Sydney, Australia. And Isabel is a principal talent advocate for Hunted. Isabel, thank you for joining me. Good morning. And. So good morning for me. What, what time is it for you?
1: Uh, it is 12 minutes past seven in the evening for me. Oh, so well, yeah, thank, 11
0: Thanks up. for doing a late podcast session with me. I do appreciate it. No well, um, So where I always like to start on this podcast is how, how did Isabel Stevenson end up in the uh, recruitment world? Let's start there.
1: Um, like most people, pretty much by chance. So uh, my early career, I was running a fine art gallery in Windsor in the UK, okay. um, which is a bit of a mix of sales and customer service. And a friend of mine who was in sales was approached by a for a recruitment role. wasn't right for them. They weren't interested, but they knew that, um, yeah, I wanted my weekends back basically <laughs> um, and was so what, starting yeah. to consider options and I got referred.
0: Okay, nice. So at that at that point then, always interested to know, did you have any sort of perception of recruitment at that point?
1: Um, I don't think I did, really. Um, didn't know a massive amount about the industry. Mm. Um and actually I didn't learn a lot about the industry really? until I was in my first job. I interviewed with one company and I started with that one company. It's not oh, like wow. I chopped around and checked out my options, mm. uh, which is probably a bit naive, but it turned out really well. <laughs> I was yeah, very lucky, okay. so.
0: Cool. So, so the, um, okay. So ended up in recruitment and then you've been in recruitment now for, is it about four or five years?
1: Yeah. coming up to five years. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, I think I saw in in the, in the first role that you was in, you was there for like 18 or so months around about that.
1: Yeah. So I started off with, um, a boutique search and selection brand in Berkshire, um, And I was in a researcher role there. I focused on roles in um, accounting and finance within commerce and industry. Okay. And then I moved to London and moved into a private equity specialist, which was kind of true exec search.
0: Okay. True exec search. Yeah. I'm interested to go into that. Okay. So I always like to talk to people about their first year in recruitment. Um, How So in a search and selection environment, what, what was that like then? What so what what was you doing on a daily basis in in an environment like that?
1: It was a it was a hugely broad role. I think the only thing I really wasn't doing was the business development element. Um okay. a lot of candidate sourcing, process management, pitch preparation out of 10 pitches mm. together pitch packs. Um we did work probably 75, 80 percent on a retained basis. Yeah, I was gonna
0: say was it retained um, then? That makes sense.
1: Yeah, and um those retained projects would be on a third a third a third so you have a third mm. of the fee up front a third on shortlist delivery or some brands do it on long list delivery
0: sure and a third
1: on placement um so you know they're long searches they they're you know two three four five month searches wow very price heavy um but i really you know i enjoyed that a lot i'm really? a very kind of yeah i'm a structured person and i like process so okay. um it's well, and
0: then, yeah. and was it was it um typically sort of senior hires that you were looking for Or was it quite varied or
1: yeah it was senior it was sort of cFO finance mm. director um
0: okay yeah probably
1: minus two um so fpna financial uh, sort of financial controllers that kind of thing okay cool um but yeah senior end
0: and then so what so in your role there was you Would you be getting on the phone to people? Because I've I've had a bit of exposure to sort of people that have worked in that environment. So is it your job to, as you said, a mixture of things, but to identify people and then have you got to do and set certain questions with people and then if they qualify or disqualify, then you pass them on to. I don't know. How does it?
1: Yeah, do so. I would very much do the outbound and the approach. Yeah. and then I would do the phone screen and obviously with time, I was also interviewing face to face, but typically not on my own in that yeah. of research. Um, in that environment, in a, an exec search environment, you'd then step up to an associate role and that's where you would be very much leading the search. Sure. might also be doing element of BD. And you're interviewing face to face on your own, mm. um, but I kind of learned my craft, I guess, sitting next to somebody in an interview room who really led the relationship. Really? Um, but I had very early exposure to to clients. I was allowed to make mistakes, um, and you know, given candidates to cut my teeth on from early days, which I, which you don't get in all environments. But the first brand that I worked for um, really gave me. A lot of responsibility very early on and let me crack on which was um, invaluable for me really
0: awesome so so that first year as a whole then how's that did you find it difficult
1: it was great what? no I loved it really absolutely loved it yeah
0: why, why did um, you enjoy it so much
1: um people I think because really you know, I was I was really lucky the culture of the business that I was working for was absolutely fantastic um mm. you know they were very i think they were quite ahead of their time in terms of looking at how to attract retain and develop the best possible talent mm. they were a privately owned BT business so we had fantastic incentives really good rewards we were well paid well looked after and um everybody was kind of on the same journey you know very much had a united vision um mm. and yeah the culture was super it was really good
0: awesome so how big was the company
1: at the time they're about 30 but I think they've okay. grown to 55 plus now wow awesome okay yeah
0: so how how so then typically how would you how would you get like how is it uh, how is it structured in terms of you getting paid like how does it work in terms of like billings or how is it structured that's yeah. that's interesting like how what's the difference so there?
1: typically in a researcher role you will you'll be paid a bonus like a fixed bonus on yeah, the number sure. of candidates that you source that then get placed Ah. Um, you may also be paid for the number of interviews that they go to, or if they get shortlisted. But typically, it's done on placements. Sure. Um, quite often, it's tiered, so you get paid five hundred for the first, yeah, okay, five or quarter, and it goes up. Um, mm. And then the second brand that I worked for when I was working for a private equity specialist, we also had an annual bonus, and it was a peer-reviewed bonus, which was really interesting. And I think also a, a very peer-reviewed
0: bonus. Yeah.
1: yeah. Really. Yeah, a really good way of doing it, actually. Um, bigger business, about 50 people. Yeah. Um, and we had a, a certain amount of potential bonus, and we earned a percentage of that. So we could earn 100% if yeah. we were reviewed well by our peers, or we could go down to 50 And who would typically
0: review? Would it be your manager, or would it be just your colleague, or what?
1: All levels. So really? um Yeah, so director of the practice that you sat in um, to you know, a peer, you know, who literally was doing your job to the EA who supported you. Um, Yeah. And it was really interesting. It wasn't just on performance. It was also, it was on all areas of how you contributed to your business, um, how accurate your CRM input was. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, it was really thorough, but it was, um, it was really good. You know, it really showed you where your strengths and weaknesses were, but it also meant that, you know, if you weren't so good at some stuff, but you were good at others, it all kind of came out in the wash. Yeah, but what it did mean was that in the two weeks, like running up to um, you submitting scores for various different people, that suddenly you were everyone's best friends, and
0: uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> everyone
1: was really agreeable for those couple of weeks. <laughs>
0: That's interesting. So, okay, just to sort of wrap wrap that up, then, like, what? So now, obviously, um, what? So for people listening, what? How would you best articulate the difference between agency? V- versus exec search like what what is what is the main difference would you say
1: um I would say speed and depth of relationship probably mm. um that's not to say that there aren't contingent recruiters who don't have very um very solid mm. long term well, it's, it's having
0: to be that it's having to be that now isn't it otherwise
1: absolutely Yeah. Yeah
0: so, yeah so so it's going more that way which is interesting. yeah the,
1: the transactional stuff just doesn't cut it um mm. anymore especially i mean i can speak for the sydney market obviously and Rec specifically it's a very face to face market um time served is a huge factor in to um you have to kind of build that trust yeah. and yeah you know transactional rec is just um yeah no one has any truck for it anymore
0: mm. okay so it, it so it's the the depth of relationship um i'm i'm assuming it's also the depth of process and things like that. Very
1: much so, yeah. So it's a it's a very in-depth process and you know, you might actually reference around a candidate before you ever approach them, for example, in exec search. Um, Mm. you know, so you might take references from former peers or um, you know, somebody who worked in a private equity fund that backed the business that they were the CFO in, for example, and take references on them before they even know that you're interested in them. Um so it's a lot of pre-qualifying of candidates. Mm. Um it's very heavy on, you know, the due diligence piece. It's very heavy on paperwork and process. And you definitely stay closer to the client throughout. Yeah. I think that's another one of the key differences is that the, the client has total visibility over your process. Really? You know, on a weekly, sometimes almost daily basis, they see where you've been, who you've been talking to, your obstacles, um, you know, who you've referenced, what what's coming out of where. Um, and rather than I think, you know, often with contingent recruitment, you might take a brief Maybe you touch base every now and then, but quite often they don't they don't necessarily know exactly what your process is looking like until you come out with a result one way or another yeah
0: yeah no that's really interesting um okay two two final things then um one i think so so during this period like how old was you when you got into that role and and started speaking to those people i'll explain why I asked that
1: Ooh, early twenties <laughs> yeah so yeah. so
0: what I just think is really interesting about that because I speak to a lot of people about it is you always hear now, sort of needing to be an expert in your field, having the domain knowledge. So yeah. early twenties, <laughs> um, and obviously in your next role as well, private equity CFOs, all this. So like, how how was it? Yeah, being in that world because I'm sure it'd be very easy for you to make the decision that you wasn't knowledgeable. Who am I to be speaking to these people? I'm a bit worried about it. I don't understand their world. Well. Do you get what I mean? So
1: yeah,
0: how did how did you deal with that? And yeah, like how how was that for you?
1: I got some really good advice in early days and that is that people love talking about themselves. Yeah. <laughs> um podcast obviously evidence that. So um, I was basically told just ask candidates about what they do and and mm. ask them to explain that to you in layman's terms and ask them a lot of questions. Um, I've got a bit of imposter syndrome so I'm I always want to swat up on, you know, yeah. on whatever my subject matter is. I don't want to come across as not being credible. Um, so asking a lot of questions, also asking, you know, colleagues in the business to sit me down and do a little quick bit about training. Yeah. Um, I also um got, I think I got like an accounting for dummies book and really um, nice. just try to get like comfortable. You try to some do your own particular. homework as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. I love an Amazon, an Amazon buy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and just a quick one on that. I think you hear quite a lot, I've definitely heard quite a lot on different podcasts and 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 things like that. That typically people that not always, but typically people that are higher up are actually typically can have quite a lot of humility and are willing to to talk and share and stuff like that. So, how was your experience? Because I think I'm thinking of people listening that maybe recognizing that they do want to get higher on the supply chain. They want to start doing more high, um, obviously more senior people. But it's very easy to make the sort of assumption of oh, I don't want to speak to them. They're a, a CFO, or do, there's obviously again that imposter syndrome and stuff like that. So, how did you find dealing with more senior end people, and how receptive were they when you were yeah speaking to them?
1: I think that totally depends on the sector that you cover. um You know, approaching, I found that CFOs and finance directors in commerce and industry um were kind of a different kettle of fish to mm. <laughs> some of the private equity guys. Has definitely. Um, a certain um attitude and it's a it's it's small it's a small world you know yeah. um and I found that um I had to really up my game when I moved into the private equity space it was probably less slack for me to make mistakes or really? um to come across as being a bit of an amateur um but it also depends a little bit on the brand that you work for as to whether or not they encourage you to learn by mistakes or whether they um you know make you feel that you can't put a foot wrong because that can be very undermining for your confidence if yeah, you're in an environment sure. where, you know, you're made to feel like the world's going to stop spinning if you, you know, if you mess up. And um, <laughs> I think humility is obviously really important being able to say, look, I'm, you know, it's not a world I'm familiar with. Would you mind talking me through that? Um, mm. You need to be given the confidence to do that without feeling like, you know, you're letting the yeah, brand down. Point.
0: Yeah. Okay. So final thing that I'd love to um, ask you about that sort of experience is, so, um, how how much exposure did you get to to the people the associates the people above you pitching for the retainers so you you were put, obviously supporting in the, the pitching decks and stuff like that yeah um so yeah so you was was you did you get quite a bit exposure into these people obviously pitching for business and stuff like that yeah that so fair? early
1: days when i was in more of what i call a search and selection brand i had a lot of exposure and i was okay. you know taken everywhere and you know cracked on with it when i went into a true exec search environment i think a lot of people do find this when they're in an exec search firm is that um it's there's a very strong structure to progression so you might Mm. spend you know two years as a researcher three years as an associate and it's a very depending on the structure of your business it's very cut and dry it's very black and white as sure rungs you have to climb and how long it takes to climb them and what the criteria are for climbing them and if you're in a a boutique that is perhaps a little bit um more flexible and perhaps does some more contingent work and doesn't just do exact level roles um you know the more you ask for the more you're given and the faster you can you can um you can move up the ladder but i think exec search can be a little bit frustrating for some people who do want to you know progress very quickly because it's definitely more process heavy it's definitely more this is the way we do it this is how you progress and you really have to become a true um vertical expert before you start mm. doing the bdp so you have to have like very okay. deep industry knowledge
0: what i'd love to get your um thoughts on is cuz i'm i'm speaking to um a lot of recruiters who well, so I speak to a lot of recruitment business owners and for them, they want more forecastable revenue, right? Um, one of my actual uh, clients that I work with, she only helps recruiters with more retained business. And I think that's okay. definitely something that a lot of people are thinking about, right? In terms of just productization, all these different things, right? So I guess what I'd love to just get your two pence on is what is what are the typical things that you heard as to why their clients should be working with them on a retained basis to get what I mean because I think a lot of people have that assumption of it's the same as doing contingent or what's the actual difference these types of things so I guess anything yeah. that you um yeah um, and do you do retain work now do you do um do you pitch for retain work now actually at Hunted yeah
1: absolutely so the model that we have here at Hunted isn't a traditional um contingent fee per hire rec mm. model we typically work with um, the brands that we work with on a project basis. Sure. Um, so that might be an offsite project. It might be an onsite project where we're, you know, in their office, embedded in their culture. Um, but I think that whether it's rec or whether it's Exec Search, the retained element um, is really it flips. Whether it's retained versus contingent, totally flips the model on its head. So contingent work is always, no matter what sector you're in typically it's it's servicing the candidate market so it's very speculative it's you know who have we got on our books um who's looking for a role now who do i know who we can pull in for this Mm. whereas when you are retained um you are really getting under the skin of that brand And taking their narrative to market, you are exclusively representing them, you are doing it, you know, with accuracy and integrity, Mm. um, and you are covering the market very thoroughly, whether people are passive, whether they're active, um, and you are making sure that you look under every stone for the right solution. Mm. Um, So it's a much more thorough, diligent process, Um, it's more likely to have an accurate outcome um it's definitely more of a precision tool than the the contingent piece yeah. and that's not to say that contingent can't be precision at all um but i think if you just look at the sort of stereotypical transactional end of it
0: yeah the, yeah um, so and, and is is that and is is this typically what the types of things that you'd hear the your obviously old colleagues say to clients like this, like, do you get what I mean? Cause it's like, I f- a lot of people listening may want to, they like the idea of retained, right? Oh, have love to sell to a retainer. Yeah. Like it's like, it's so like, what were the, just the core things that you always heard as to, this is why you have to pay as a retainer. This is why you should, this, these are the benefits of a retainer. Do you get what I mean?
1: Yeah. I think that network is a huge part of that. And uh, you know, okay. if you are working with a brand that is well established, has a very strong brand, um, Has mm. a very strong network and is well-known. Um, you know, and obviously track record comes into that yeah. um, when it comes to network and reputation. Track record is very important, you know. Um, and I think those three combined are really what brands tend to sell retainer on. So, yeah, mm. network, track record, reputation, um, yeah. because really that's what gives them access to the best talent, um, especially in, in quite a talent short market where perhaps... You know, there's a, a pretty small pool of people who can do that job and they're constantly being hit up by sure. recruiters. Okay,
0: cool. So, um, all right, final thing then. If, uh, knowing what you know now. Yeah. Any advice <laughs> Any advice that you wish you'd received early on in your recruitment career?
1: Um, if I could give myself some advice, yeah. it would probably be... I mean, I definitely drifted a bit in my early 20s, Um and I think I probably got behind my peers on the career ladder a little bit and I would probably tell my 22 year old self to, um, yeah, to knuckle down <laughs> and, and, and suss it out. You know, I think I kind of, I look for fulfillment in the wrong places in my early twenties and I would have said, look, look for it in your career and crack on with it. Okay. And I would definitely also say, you know, to anyone who's like in their early days of recruitment, the nature of the industry is that there can be office politics and, um, there are elements of the role that are quite mundane. Mm. Um it's just an unavoidable fact. And you have to make sure that you're always looking at the bigger picture, look at the long game. And I was we got stuck in a short game for the first few years of my recruitment career. Mm. And um, and actually doing a year or something where there are a few little niggles, it might seem like a long time that you're feeling a bit disgruntled. But if it's moving you towards your life goal in your career, then look at that bigger picture, play the long game. Yeah. Um, yeah, that would be the advice that I would give to myself. Would
0: when be. when did you feel like, oh, actually, I can do recruitment as my career? Like, do you know what I mean? Because you're talking about recruitment as being a yeah. career then, when typically, obviously, that that's a big part of this podcast, making recruitment actual a career choice. But how, mm-hmm. yeah, like, when when did you start feeling, oh, actually, like you said, a bit of a realization that I can knuckle down, maximize the career opportunity that I have. But when did you really start feeling that recruitment was a career for you?
1: Quite, quite early on, I have to say, um, mm. I had really, in my first role in recruitment, I did have very clear career progression and a lot of structure and support around that. Sure. I think that I didn't necessarily take all the opportunities available to me to develop in that first year. Um, and then I moved into another business and saw another, a different way of doing it. And I kind of figured out what fits for my personality um yeah. you know what was going to suit me as I developed and and from there I kind of got a good idea right there's two different ways of doing it that I've seen there's obviously a lot of different ways to, to you know build a career in recruitment and I started to formulate my own idea of what's going to be right for me what's going to you know and um and it was good timing because obviously when I came to hunt it all aligned quite well
0: yeah, that that was gonna be my next point. So, just to frame it out, then, so you've been uh, um hunted now for is it like two and a bit, two and a two and a
1: half years, two yeah. and a half
0: years. Cool. Yeah. So, and and you did you start that? Obviously, you have to help me out. But did you start that early part in Korean <laughs> and hunted when you was abroad,
1: or yeah? So I was a candidate, um, and I got in touch with James because we were moving overseas, and I was really keen to do some remote work for business in Asia or. Mm. Um, or you know, someone in Australia, but I didn't want to do a weekly commute. Um yeah. so I said that I would need to be hundred percent remote.
0: And this so, is in um, the UK.
1: I was well I called I got in touch with James initially and I actually don't know how I came across hunted but presumably I saw them somewhere probably in <laughs> content. Yeah. And um I was I knew I was leaving the job that I was I was doing in the UK but James and I never met. We had a couple of phone calls and yeah. he said um, and then I started the move um, I literally got married and we, we left the country 24 hours later. Really? Um, yeah, my husband had a job and I didn't.
0: And we, <laughs> and where was this?
1: Yeah. So we moved to Bali. Okay. Yeah. Um, sort of flying by the seat of our pants a little bit, maybe a yeah. little bit naive as to what that first year of marriage is going to be like. Um, but yeah, so, so James then, um, Actually, interestingly, he obviously has a huge network in sure. Asia and um, in, in Sydney. He spent time, he lived in Singapore for years and built Paddington Partners there. So knew a lot of brands and interestingly found that none of them were quite forward-thinking enough to be happy to employ someone to be 100% remote. They mm. weren't fully set up for it. And if they did have offshore solutions, it was you know for somebody doing more of the administrative yeah. side not necessarily doing the research piece or sure. market mapping so um he said actually we're a bit interested in growing the region we have we have some established relationships but we need somebody in the time zone so would you come over to the dark side and, uh, and dark come into side. yeah
0: yeah and what and was what, um, your yeah. perception like obviously now being in rhetoric for two and a half years perception at that point what did that look like um,
1: It wasn't great. And I can honestly say if it had, you know, if hunted had been a typical or typical retroactive environment, I don't think I would have been interested. I'm not ashamed to say I'm probably, I probably was a bit um, prejudiced, you know, content prior Uh to investigation. And, um, but, uh, but James really taught me through and Guy taught me through in detail that, you know, the business model and um, the solution or the the problem that hunted was fixing in in mm. recruitment and in recruitment more generally and i really bought into it um and i also like that james you know had james is like he's a big picture guy you know he's yeah, full of sure. ideas he's full of enthusiasm it's like a hundred thousand things going on at once and my my scope in my role was just so broad um yeah. Yeah, so okay. it's very lucky that that, um, yeah, nice. All came and and
0: so, how long? So, then just to frame out, then, so then, how long did you, uh, uh, live in Bali for before? Because, you- and then obviously, I, I met you in the yeah. UK, and then now obviously yeah. you're in Sydney. So, how long was you in Bali for?
1: So, I lived in Bali for two years. Um, oh, wow, okay. I would be I would do a trip or two every year over to Sydney to see clients and yeah. candidates. Um, and I would always come back to the UK office during the UK summer months to yeah. plug into the team, yeah. um, get up to speed, you know, feel part of the culture. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I was, I had, I didn't meet James for the first six months of working for the business. I hadn't met really? a single soul until the end of the first year when I That's came back crazy. to the UK. For the summer. What was that actually yeah. like then? That's what
0: I'd love to talk about because I think, <clears throat> yeah like everyone a lot of people have in today's world that sort of vi- vision of working on a beach laptop <laughs> internet do you know what i mean sip like yeah. drinking coconut water like it, like a lot of people have that vision right a lot of people may not associate that with working in recruitment or that's a possibility right everyone yeah. has their own but like what was so like, as you just said you didn't meet James, who's the founder at Hunted, and, and that that was the person that employed you. You didn't meet him for six months. So, like, how how did you actually find that being a fully remote part of this business? Like, how did yeah. you find that?
1: It was really challenging. I'm not gonna lie. I um I had to be really disciplined around um managing my time and because uh, yeah, you
0: had no one holding you accountable. Schedule. Obviously, the percent. sunshine, and you could go and have a surf <laughs> if you wanted to. Like, no, no, do you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: I and that. I was lucky that, you know, Hunted is an environment that supports you with the platform to get your job done, but you also yeah. do have the flexibility to go for a surf if you want to go for a <laughs> surf. So, um, yeah, really lucky on that. It was tough, though, you know, that you pick up so much just by osmosis of being in an office and having the chatter around you and, and seeing, hearing, feeling updates in the business as they happen. And when I joined Hunted, the business was evolving so quickly that on a week-by-week basis, I felt like I was, you know, almost struggling to keep up and um you mm. have to really roll with the punches in that kind of environment and not get caught up in like you know what, what you're struggling to do this week but as I said see the long game but I did get great training I got very good support um and uh yeah it's just really nice to come back in the what did what talking.
0: did the what did a typical day look like for you then if you had to really manage um, your time what what did you yeah what what did a typical day look like
1: so I was two hours behind, um, Sydney and Melbourne and okay. three hours behind other areas of Australia. So I would quite often start very early my time. So, you know, maybe half five, six o'clock my time. Um, and really? then, yep. Yeah, so I okay. had a home office, so it roll out. Oh, of wow. <laughs> it's like this pop on the headset. Off you go. Yeah. Um, so, and I did do some working in co-working spaces, but, um, the reality of that—it's not really my cup of tea. I'm not a cafe worker at all. I do like a work environment and office feel. Yeah. Um, so. And I was actually in um, on the east coast of Bali. So the west coast is where um, there's a lot of Western um, businesses, there's a lot of co-working spaces. I was on the east coast, very much less of that. Oh. Okay. Uh, infrastructure was much much poorer. Um. So yeah, I roll out of bed, do some early an early session with with um, Sydney. I was also doing quite a lot in Asia at the time, which was the same time zone as me. So middle of the sure. day was quite often focused on Hong Kong and Singapore. And then end of the day for me was when the UK team would start coming online. So I would, um, you know, end of my day from maybe five, six, seven, eight o'clock, I would be talking to the guys in, in the UK. So um, yeah, okay. juggling time zones quite often meant that I was doing longer days, but it did also mean that I could go for surf, go get a yeah, yeah. Um, But it's not the... Um, it's not the dream unless you are like a true digital nomad you know you're creative you're you know Mm. producing digital content whatever and you can uh, hang out in a hipster cafe in Changu. then (laughs) um, it's not the reality probably wasn't quite the same as the dream you know there was power cuts and terrible internet and snakes and scorpions and just general madness you know the culturally there's not that much um yeah they're pretty apathetic about things happening the way they're meant to happen stuff working the way it's meant to work and anything being on time and I, mm. <laughs> I'm i quite a kind of time-oriented person so there were definitely some frustrations yeah but it was um it was quite an adventure it was a great experience and um so
0: yeah it, it, yeah so it, so through that then advice for people who are thinking about yeah, either maybe thinking about starting their own recruitment business or maybe thinking about taking their skill set internationally, which is one of one of obviously the great things with, with recruitment. Yeah. And and getting themselves into that sort of environment. I could make a couple of placements a month. That's 10, 15 grand in the bank. Um, or from a laptop, happy days, like what what advice would you give those people?
1: Yeah, I think um in the short term that I can see the appeal of it hundred um, percent mm. but it definitely takes a certain type of person to work pretty much completely on your own for yeah. you know more than a year I would say um, definitely need some sort of mental strength around that and good discipline and I would also say that it's all very well and good but you really have to consider whether like it's moving you towards your long-term career goals or whether you're mm. actually just treading water because mm. um, you can tread water for a year or two but you know you then get to a point where you have to make a pretty hefty decision about whether what you're doing
0: yeah am i am i really committing to this and yeah that's that's true okay cool um so the australian recruitment market yeah so you've been working that for two and a bit years now
1: yes yeah yeah
0: so firstly um the the second biggest audience of this podcast is is people in australia um so the first, probably all uh, Brits <laughs> yeah probably exactly so that's my first question like what what are the actual realities now of a uk recruiter taking their skill set to australia i think I've, i have had a couple of people on the podcast that spoken about this andrew mcgregor that i know that you know um had another chap on that's from essex ended up in australia but it seems like it were it this all happened quite a few years ago right um but what what are the actual realities for uk recruiters wanting to to take their skill set to Australia,
1: it's hundred percent doable. Yeah. Um, it got so a couple of years ago they changed the legislation and the criteria you had to meet was upped. Sure. So you know a lot of it's 5 years experience, a degree, ninety k base salary—that's um, now been it's changed. It's it's much softer now, um, and I would say that anybody with three years experience who um, is billing is doing a good job of what they're doing is you know without a doubt can get a sponsorship mm. for a visa most businesses here can sponsor overseas candidates okay. um it's uh it's a little bit costly for brands so there's obviously a risk element involved so um, from so the business the, side
0: yeah,
1: yeah from the business side yeah um so we quite often find with candidates they come over here on a working holiday visa yeah and um they can work for the brand for up to 6 months so it's almost yeah. they get to try before you buy you know they make sure that it's going to be the right fit and that that person is you know, as expected, mm. based on on interview process, and then they will commit to sponsoring that candidate or that individual for two years. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, Six months to show them what manager. you're made of. Yeah, exactly. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, no, but pressure. I think that's also. I think um, I think
0: uh, it's interesting to say that because I think I think also um what I also wanted to speak about, what also Andrew spoke about, is that, and I think you spoke about the same sort of thing in terms of experiencing it that way. But that also gives you like a real opportunity to, to actually. Obviously, going there on a holiday and then coming home is different to living there, right? So I think that that six-month window is is also for yourself to go. Well, actually, do I like this culture? Do I? Yeah, yeah, can I see myself living here? Yeah. Um, And when you
1: haven't, um, I think when you haven't been in a city or in a market, you know, fully immersed in it, you really are going on what your rec to rec tells you, and maybe mm, what your friends who are over there tell you, and you get a very limited, narrow view of the market. And, um, quite often a pretty optimistic one. And I think it's, um, it gives you the opportunity with your working holiday visa, you can actually work for two different companies. So you work for six months for one company and then you have to move to another company for another six months. Okay. So you can extend your working holiday visa, but what it means is you can do six months somewhere and go, this is absolutely not what I was sold. Sure. Um, as so can the business, I suppose. Um, mm. but you then get the opportunity to move on if you want to. But, um, Okay. Yeah, because once you're on the ground, you then all these doors start opening up, and someone knows someone, and they talk to you about this brand you've never heard of. And um, mm.
0: okay, normal, so. okay, cool. What would you say then? The 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 UK recruitment market compared to the Australian market. What are the so when you're speaking to people, saying talking to them about potentially going over to Australia or whatever. Like what what are thing what are the things that you've noticed in terms of the nuances of the Australian market that are quite interesting that may vary or differ to the the uk market
1: i would say from my experience and from in rec to rec, but also from from candidates is that it's a very face-to-face market here mm. um you know the cities are generally smaller um than you know a lot of people reference it to london and the london market and i think that you just can't get across the ground you just can't cover the market and do the face-to-face piece In London, for example, in the same way that you can in Sydney, Um, you know, relationships here are really built over um, kind of personal common grounds and not so much about, um, uh, you know, impressing people with your credentials necessarily. Um, So it's very face to face. And so I think that if you're a recruiter in the UK who's used to sitting behind a desk, has a lot of incoming, um, you know, is very reactive and doesn't really cherish or relish that um kind of face-to-face relationship building piece that you will struggle, you struggle um yeah. but those who are proactive love getting out and about don't want to be sat at their desk want to be you know beading over a coffee or a beer or you know mm. a sports game then it's absolutely perfect
0: okay i like that and what uh, sydney yeah. london yeah what's the difference like how i mean I,
1: everything <laughs> yeah like how
0: do you know what i mean what is it what is the actual reality you've moved there you live there or so you worked a little yeah so like what what are the main yeah what is an actual honest view on on your perspective since living there what is it actually like living there
1: i mean life here is fantastic like the sun does mm. shine a lot mm. um and i think if you i think there's a greater. Um, focus around work-life balance in the recruitment industry here don't get me mm. wrong people still do long hours they work very hard and they're very committed to their careers and recruitment um but it's definitely more of an outdoors culture yeah um there's greater work-life balance i think that probably there are more what i call career recruiters here so um okay. you know perhaps the market is the recruitment consultants the recruitment community is perhaps a little bit older um so there's a bit more of a focus on um you know family time out of work um yeah those commitments sure um and undoubtedly you can't deny that recruitment people in the recruitment market here they get paid more (laughs) in terms of base salary in terms of OTE um they are definitely um yeah definitely making more money um it's also you know a very buoyant most of the markets here are very very buoyant and it's a long time since it's been a recession so um yeah it's especially in the technology space absolutely booming so any tech recruiters out there who who want to consider um a career down under you'll be in very very high demand um and you know, early when I was considering the move over, there are a lot of naysayers who are like, it's so expensive and yeah. um, you know, you earn more, but it costs more to do a supermarket shop. And but if you've ever lived in London and lived in a shoebox that's cost you, you know, 60% of your income, yeah. um, comparatively it's it's absolutely not more expensive really? at all.
0: And how have you found obviously I'm always interested in this because I've sort of experienced this myself just moving from um Eastbourne, which is really where I'm from, and then moving to London, right? Embedding yourself in that culture. Obviously, you've you've got the, the great privilege of living with your husband, right? So, like, how have you found yourself? Because obviously, you're in Sydney again. You're you're on your own. You're banging the drum for Hunted. with, obviously the support of the people around you, but again, you're in this sort of lone wolf scenario where you've got a yeah. you've got to manage your own time. You've got to be accountable. Like, how how have you found? Yeah, embedding yourself in in the in the culture. Because I think that's also something that people have to really consider right they're leaving especially when you move to australia you're leaving your family you're leaving your whole friendship network network. yeah exactly so yeah how, how have you personally found that and any sort of advice or learnings for for people on that
1: yeah, I, I mean, I learned this actually when we moved to Bali and I was really aware of it when we came here, is that you do have to be very proactive about yeah. building your friendship network. Um, friends happen by default, by accident in the UK, be it through mm. work, be it through school, be it through university, neighbours, whatever it happens to be. Um, but here, or, you know, generally being an expat, you do have to be really proactive. You have to do things that might make your toes curl, like join a club <laughs> or... <laughs> go to a meetup or you know whatever happens to be um and you know eventually you will find your your people um Mm. and uh yeah i found that that's been really key i'm lucky i'm in a co-working space um a big co-working space there's a lot of kind of one and two man bands you know small businesses lots of kind of recruitment startups um so we kind of have we've sniffed each other out and we um you know we've have a little bit of banter and idea yeah. share and you know just generally kind of support each other a little bit um and I've had some really fantastic recommendations for networking events which has definitely helped as well
0: nice so so really if you are again finding yourself there or seriously considering it it's what yeah you, I found that in London you have to you have to put yourself out there you have to yeah see, as you said do, do may have to do some stuff that makes your toe, toes curl but yeah put yourself out there and that again that, that's probably something you want to do that's gonna Help you understand if it's a place that you want to live and and, and move to, right? Absolutely. Um what what are you seeing that what what are some of the sort of exciting or best Australian recruitment agencies doing in Australia at the moment that you've picked up on that you find quite interesting? Anything to share there?
1: In terms of recruitment process and productizing recruitment, I don't think that there's anything groundbreaking necessarily that's happening mm. here that's not happening in the uk because brand- i've heard
0: a few sorry to cut in but I've, I've heard just say this and i'll let you talk but a couple of people have said to me that um a lot of people say that sort of australia are always a couple of years behind the uk and it's yeah. quite a general term but how much how much i don't know what that's based off, but um, yeah I think that
1: yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair but it does mean also that there is like huge scope for opportunity yeah. For opportunity yeah absolutely and I think the brands that are really standing out for me when I'm meeting new brands and um you know getting a layer of the land and hearing who's good and who's not and so on and so forth the the brands um I think talent acquisition is a huge area where they're a little bit behind the UK market. It's still very reactive here. Okay. Um, I don't think that brands have necessarily fully embraced the concept of investing in their employer brands to attract and retain the best talent. Um, mm. And obviously, it's a very long process, and it's but it's vital for sustainable of course. organic growth. Um, so... The brand brands that are doing well here are those who kind of really understand this. They have a specific strategy around this um, rather than just leaving it down to chance.
0: Mm. Um,
1: because, you, yeah, those are, the, those are the guys who are attracting good talent. It's so competitive here um, in order to reach, you know, really good recruitment consultants. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and the ones who are making a bit of a noise about why they're a great employer, the ones who are flying um, and the ones who are not wanting to spend money to make money are the guys who are probably shrinking and struggling a little bit. Mm.
0: So opportunity, right? It's probably a good word. So okay, cool. Um all right then. So um what I'd say is so I'd love to ask you a couple of questions on resilience before we finish. As I said, I've got uh I have an event coming up very soon. Um so and i think you've definitely had to demonstrate resilience in in your time right living in different places definitely going to be demonstrating resilience now and what you're doing so what what does resilience in recruitment mean to you isabel oh
1: um i think resilience means um being an optimist where you can mm. um probably being a realist but but certainly being an optimist where you can um it definitely helps to have skin thicker than a rhino and not to ever need me sleep and I think that (laughs) if you've got those two down that you are halfway there to being resilient but it's definitely a it's a mindset you know and it's Mm. um I think it's very important to keep things in perspective in order to maintain your resilience you know, not to get things out of perspective and out of whack and to understand that the world's not going to stop spinning. Uh, If you build something up, that you always get a second go at something um, that's, uh, yeah, it's not, you're not saving lives. And I think it's important to have a sense of humor in the industry to be able to laugh at yourself and also yeah. to, to laugh at the industry more not generally. Not up too seriously, yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I have utmost respect for colleagues, clients, candidates, and, you know, cons- I take my career very seriously and it's obviously a very professional industry, yeah. but we do need to take everything with a pinch of salt sometimes and um, maintain our sense of humor around it and, and kind of, you know, enjoy some of the recruitment Cliches and <laughs> stories, and um, and just laugh at it. Be able to laugh at our mistakes. Be able to not take things too personally. We always have a choice as to whether or not we let negativity affect us. And if we choose sure. to, as much as possible, not allow ne- negativity to affect us, we are definitely standing a better chance of of being resilient.
0: Nice. Um. So how how do you think the importance or need for resilience has changed? as the industry evolved?
1: Wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> a really big question. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, it depends on your market. Again, I think it depends sure. on your market as to where you apply your resilience. Um, and I think it's also important to, with resilience, to know when your resilience is worthwhile and when it's not, there's no shame mm. in in actually quitting whilst you're head or turning away business or saying, no, I can't do that and being realistic about your shortcomings. There's a difference between resilience and um, you know, pig headedness and being stubborn sure. or um and I would always say that you have to be authentic and you have to be honest and you have to manage client expectations. And if a client's expectation is genuinely something that you can't deliver on. Typically, you will build trust if you push back on that. Um, and, you know, I would rather not undercut myself for short-term wins because, obviously, that will hinder me in the long term. Mm. Um, so, yeah, with regards to resilience, um, I think knowing when to use your resilience, um, I don't think that really answers your question. No, but... no, I like
0: that. <laughs> I, think, I think that's interesting what you said. So, final question. What, what can people do themselves to instill... More resilience in them, in themselves.
1: I think it's an. I think it's a trait that people have or they don't. I don't think it's. It's definitely something that you can. It's like a muscle you can use it and you can. You know, grow it. Mm. But I think that. Um, you know, typically people who have got through the first two, three years in recruitment definitely have resilience. You know, yeah. it's kind of a natural. It's like a sort of natural selection. You know, you maybe yeah. fall into recruitment. Uh, you bounce straight back out again if it's not going to be for you, you know, pretty yeah. quickly, like, oh, my God, what? Uh, how did I get into this? This is not what I was expecting, and, and you're off onto the next thing. But, yeah. you know, after the first two or three years, you sussed it out. You know what the job is. You know what's expected of you. And you just learn through mistakes, and you get kind of a little bit savvier next time, next time in that same situation, and um, your resilience just grows. But I don't think resilience is something that you can fake. And, again, this comes back to the authenticity piece, that if you are, um, you know, creating this dissonance between who you're trying to be and who you really are inside, you are going to end up coming unstuck emotionally. Um, And, you know, you need to find... I mean, I've had to find on the resilience to grow my resilience and recruitment. I've really had to find a way of operating that aligns with my internal values. Um, Mm. And as a result, it's not that hard for me to be resilient. You know, I operate in a way that... um, doesn't ever compromise my values my morals um and so being resilient and kind of going the distance isn't too hard for me because i don't you know i don't feel in an uncomfortable position on a daily basis in terms of how i operate with with candidates and clients
0: yeah no i like that great answer um okay before i ask you the the final question what is uh what are you excited about isabel what what do you want to shout about what are you excited about
1: I am excited um, to potentially be doing a podcast live event with hey. you. <laughs> Stay yep. tuned, everybody. Yep, um, sure. Coming up, and um, yeah, just future growth here in, in Sydney. Like it's it's mm. a it's a fantastic uh, city to be in. And Australia's, you know, it's um, definitely in the pink at the moment in the recruitment industry. Um, I'm really hoping they've got a visa legislation review in March, and that looks like when
0: they they typically review things
1: gets looked at every six months. But but I think there are going to be some changes again in March, and there are some signs that um, it will look positive from a getting permanent residency perspective, which I think a lot of recruiters are excited about. Yeah, yeah. But but, yeah, I mean. Yeah, Just having excited, Excited
0: for the adventure, right? <laughs> um, okay, cool. So, um, question I ask everyone. You can answer it with a, a phrase, a word, sentence. Um, but if Isabel could communicate to every single recruiter out there, they'd take on your advice, they'd listen, they'd implement it tomorrow. What, what are you saying to the people? What comes to mind?
1: Um, don't discount.
0: Don't discount. <laughs> I like that.
1: Uh, yeah, know your worth without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I've learned this the hard way, you know, building a desk in a in a new market where nobody's heard of me. Mm. Um, really kind of, you know, it's hard graft and it's a cold build. I've learned that you can create more value for your client and you can minimize the risk that they are assuming um, by working with you without dropping a price. Mm. And I think it's really important to to know what you are worth um, to stand by that and to be prepared to walk away from business if it doesn't, you know, if it's not mutually beneficial for both parties. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, if you undercut yourself in early days for those quick wins, you're not making your pipeline sustainable in the long term and it makes it very difficult for you to grow. Um, so I would definitely say, yeah, don't discount. Um,
0: I like uh, it. Yeah, I like it. Isabel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really want to ensure this podcast remains valuable and relevant for all of you. If you have topics or questions you would love me to cover with future guests, then please get in touch with me. Best place to get me is on LinkedIn. Just search Hesha and drop me a message. I would love to hear from you. Finally, if you have two minutes, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave an honest review for the podcast. It will simply mean that I can reach more people with this podcast. You can easily leave a review for the podcast by clicking the link in the episode notes or by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash rollercoaster. Thank you again for listening